Hello, this is Richard Joy, Executive Director of ULI Toronto, and welcome to our special podcast series, In Case You Missed It. In this season, we delve deep into the ULI Toronto archives to present past speakers of our signature annual Fireside Chats, featuring industry and city building leaders from our region, their perspectives on the past and the present from the time we recorded, and their sage advice for emerging industry leaders. That these interviews were recorded as much as a decade ago adds a special dimension to these podcasts. They are already time capsules of a different era. In this episode, famed CEO Ed Sonshine and, and, and his colleague Fred Wax from RioCan in 2011 were our featured guests, and we hope you enjoy this great conversation. Um, my name is John O'Brien, and I'd like to welcome you here this evening uh, on behalf of the entire ULI executive. Um, this is the third in a series of an evening with, um, and uh, each one of them has been better than the last, and I have high hopes for this evening. Um, just to give you a, a few housekeeping things, the we will, the main part of this will go on till seven and then we're gonna have a 15 minute Q&A and there will be a, a microphone passed around. So, and then we'll finish at 7.15. Uh, I do have to because uh, without our sponsors, these evenings would not actually exist. So Metropia, Page and Steel and CIBC World Markets, who I know are all represented here today, um, are our event sponsors and our lead sponsor is Goodman's and uh, Mark Noskowicz is going to come up at the end and actually say a few words to Ed and Fred. Um, just by way of a little bit of preamble, this day wasn't without its drama. Um, Ed's um, mother was uh, hospitalized today and um, we weren't sure if he was going to be able to make it and it's a uh, measure of the man that he did turn up here tonight um, but I would like to recognize his pinch hitter Jeff Ross um, who uh, he, he deserves he deserves a round of applause because he was actually going to step in. He asked me to actually introduce him as a six foot three right-handed pitcher coming out of the bullpen, throwing at 95 miles an hour. Um, but let me start off. I'll start off with um, with uh, Fred first. Um, I first knew Fred in 1981. We were just chatting, so 30 years I've known Fred. We started at uh, LePage together. Um, Fred was Rookie of the Year, uh, which is a, another sporting metaphor. Um, and what was immediately obvious with Fred was that he was passionate, energetic, incredibly hardworking, and had a real feel for retail. 30 years later, he is passionate, hardworking, energetic, and knows even more about retail, uh, which shows that not much changes actually in your career. If you start out one tra trajectory, you're probably going to carry on on the same one. Uh, the only, I said to uh, Fred, the only difference between him then and now was I was at a Yad Vashim evening and Fred was up there actually uh, spouting poetry. So it shows that the, with maturity comes a certain veneer. So, uh, um, and then Ed, and again, um, I know Ed doesn't need much of an introduction to any of you um, as a CEO, a CEO of uh, RioCan, but I've known Ed almost as long as I've known uh, uh, Fred. Um, and I think uh, it's a strange because we were talking about um, mothers and so it was coincidental. Um, Ed said, how are you going to introduce me? And I said, well, I always remember of all the CEOs I know, you know more about what's going on in your company and every detail of every deal. And I asked him once, why do you work so hard at it? Why do you get so granular? Why do you dig into everything? 
And he said, because it's my mother's money. I invest my mother's money in Rio Can. And if you know anything about Jewish mothers, <laughs> and he said, it's a lot of other mothers' money as well. So he said, I take it seriously because that's how I view the, the responsibility of having that money. And I think that really tells you everything you need to know uh, about Ed. Because again, this is not about biographies, this is about people. So uh, without any further ado, uh, I'm going to get off, um, leave the floor to Ed and Fred, and I'll come back at 7 o'clock and we'll take some questions. So, Fred, take her away. No poetry. <laughs> Thanks so much. Okay, so um, I play James Lipton tonight, and Eddie's going to be Marlon Brando. So, Ed, you're a successful lawyer, managing partner in a real estate law firm. Uh, you've got every major client pretty much in the 70s, part of the 80s. Anybody was somebody, uh, as, as, as John was saying, that uh, given my... Um, upbringing at, uh, at LePage uh, at the time. Everybody knew who you were and everybody knew your clients. Uh, tell us who was your favorite client and tell us something that they taught you that uh, you now try to emulate in, in your position at Reacan. That's uh, my favorite client. Somebody's going to be insulted even though it was 30 years ago. Um, probably my favorite guy. I had two. I have to say there were two. Uh, there was uh, Murray Frum, who uh, some of you may know, I'm sure you do, and uh, a guy named Jerry Sprackman. Uh, oh, there's, there's some people almost as old as me around here. Um, Jerry just, uh, you know, Jerry really taught me uh, how optimistic and confident you have to be to be in the business. And the and, uh, story I like to tell about Jerry is I'm sitting in my law office one day and he calls me up and he says, I just did a deal with AMP, now Metro, um, for those that are really young here. Um, I just did a deal with AMP in Cornwall. I said, really? He, I said, I didn't know you bought anything in Cornwall. He said, well, I got an offer out on a piece of land. I mean, this is how Eric Fraley says. But I did a deal. I just spoke to Fraley. That was the head of real estate at the time at AMP. And I did a deal with him. Why don't you call him up and just finalize and get all the paperwork done and do the deal, which is the way... Probably one of the reasons I like Jerry, he really left a lot to me, like almost everything. And um, I said, well, did you discuss rent? No. I said, did you discuss when? No. Um, okay, leave it to me, <laughs> which is why I had a lot of clients, I guess. And uh, I called up uh, Cliff Fraley, and I said, Cliff, I hear you did a deal with Jerry in Cornwall. And he almost, now keep in mind, there were no cell phones. I called him in his office. So when cell phones came, they were this big, but that was a few years later. And um, he started laughing. I, thought he, I think he fell off his chair because it was really quite astonishing. He finally gets back on the phone. I said, what's so funny? He said, you know how we did a deal? I said, no. He said, I finally got out to Cornwall because Jerry's been bugging me for two months to go look at this site in Cornwall. He says, and I called him. When I got back to my house, I said, Jerry, you know, it's not a bad site. <laughs> I said, and? He says, there's no and. <laughs> he said, that was the deal. He says, that's as far as it ever got. He said, I don't know if we really want it. I don't know what Jerry wants. And anyway, to make a long story short, about four months later, and it really was a four-month story, we signed a lease with AMP. Uh, for that thing, and a shopping center got built. I'm not sure if we own it now or not. Uh, Hopefully we don't, but we may. 
Cornwall isn't our favorite town, although we do own a mall, mall there. A mall yes. there, yes. A mall there. Uh, but um, it, uh, it just, you know, the, the, the utmost sort of blitheness uh, of, you know, knowing you bought a good piece of land and that the tenant was going to want it because, you know, fun aside, Jerry understood the dynamics of what AMP wanted out of a store. He understood the demographics, he understood the traffic flow, he understood the competitive landscape, and that once he understood all that, and he had tied up a piece of land, and you know the guy didn't just hang up on him, he was confident that the deal was gonna be done. And the interesting thing was, 90% of the time, it did. So you know what I learned from, from him really was that the, the key decision was you know finding the right location and understanding your tenants' needs. And, you know, Fred will tell you, we have really built RIACAN in many ways on understanding what the tenant needs. And, and because at the end of the day, all we do is create space where a tenant is going to carry on business and hopefully make money. That's what a retail real estate developer does. So that was a big lesson. On the other side of the coin, I learned from Jerry that you really shouldn't over lever your properties because Jerry went broke more times than you know, uh, I could count. Uh, we saved his bacon several times, finally in the early 90s. By the time I wasn't practicing law anymore, I wasn't there to save him anymore, and uh, he went down and we bought all his properties. And <laughs> it was what we did back in those days. We just bought properties. And, uh, and Murray Frum, who, uh, who I think is, is still, actually we're partners with him in a couple of deals. And... Um, because we bought most of his properties eventually too, but some of them he stayed in. And uh, he's probably 80 today. And what I learned from Murray was, uh, who was a dentist, quite simply. You know, he never tells anybody his doctor's problem, but he's a dentist. And um, Murray, uh, Murray's father-in-law, uh, the famous Barbara Frum's uh, father, uh, owned and was involved in a lot of real estate development, primarily through financing. And he untimely, passed away and there was really nobody to deal with this and there were a lot of shopping centers uh, this was the early 70s wasn't a great time a lot of shopping centers that uh, uh, you know the developer had walked away and uh, the estate as, as it then as it now was uh, was holding second mortgages it was either walk away or somebody had to roll up their sleeves and go in and finish it and I don't know if any, if any of you know dentists but they're not trained for this, to, to put it mildly. And, uh, you know, Murray did. And uh, ha luckily for me, he uh, went to the senior partner in my office, Lloyd Fogler, who knew nothing about shopping centers. And I'd, you know, been a lawyer for all of a year and a half. Uh, and he brought Murray down to my office and he said, this is your man. He says, he knows everything there is to know about shopping centers. And, you know, he'll tell you everything you need to do. Okay. I didn't want to argue with him. He was a senior partner. I was a working stiff. And um, I, I finally said to Murray after we chatted for about a half hour, I said, you know, if we're going to get this done, we're going to learn together because I don't really know what to do. I said, I know a little. Uh, he says, well, knowing a little is knowing more than me. So uh, what I saw was if you're a pretty smart guy and you just rolled up your sleeves and you learned and you talked to people, I mean, I was a lawyer. You know, okay, I was a shopping center developer lawyer, I was a real estate lawyer, I did financing, I did zoning, I did all kinds of things, but I didn't really know 
how to do what I ultimately ended up doing. But you know what? Career shifts can be good. He went from being a dentist uh, to a, a pretty big-time developer, literally, I guess it was just about 40 years ago. It was in the early 70s, or maybe it's 38 or 39 years ago. And I went from being a uh, lawyer uh, almost 25 years ago now to uh, being, I don't know what I am, but you know I sit here and talk to people. But uh, Freddie does all the work, and I talk to people. But the, uh, you know, so you can do it. You can make a career shift, and you can learn. So I'm sorry for that 20-minute answer to a short question. I, was, I, 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 but actually, I know we have an, a, no, an no, hour, <laughs> so what the hell. Um, but really, going back to the A&P story, yeah. what you're really saying, and, and looking at Jeff Jordy and John, uh, our team over there. I'm actually talking to them, so I'll learn something. Um, nothing's really changed. No. Jeff nice. says a, a tenant likes something. Jordy goes out and tries to find it, and, and Jonathan tries to tie it up. And that's really as far that's as, oh, that's as really complicated changed. as it gets. And you know what? You, it's as complicated. It's not that complicated, but you have to understand what the tenants want. And that's, you know, sorry to pick on you, Jeff, but you're always almost sitting here, so you should find it easy. The, the key to, to uh, a great leasing guy besides, you know, being able to tell a lie and not look like you are lying um, just, just a just fire skill, I think. But I used to be a leasing guy. <laughs> so, well, when we started kicking around the United States, uh, I remember we were on that crazy bus in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, or some some misbegotten place in Pennsylvania. Uh, our, our welcome to Pennsylvania, by the way, was we flew and we chartered a plane to go fly down there because there's not a lot of flights to, to Harrisburg. And uh, as we landed, I saw something that looked very familiar and talking to the guys when we got off the plane, I said, you know, th those structures over there, it looks just it's like Three Mile Island. Any of you remember the pre-Japan, that was the last nuclear meltdown. And they looked at me and said, oh, because it is Three Mile Island. <laughs> I said, what the hell are we doing here? But we now own some shopping centers nearby to Three Mile Island. But uh, we were going around touring some space, and we saw one of the shopping centers they were showing us, and, and there was a big sign for lease in one of the windows. And the head of leasing for uh, Cedar Reek uh, was asked by Jeff. I was sitting right in front of him. Uh, well, you know, what are you doing about that store? Oh, we, are you kidding? It's an opportunity. We have this tenant. We have that tenant. And, you know, it's just a question of which one we pick. And Jeff looked at her and he said, oh, I see things are the same here. You learn how to lie with a straight face fast. <laughs> and she almost fell out of her seat. She was laughing so hard because she was lying. She had no, no prospects even. But um, it did subsequently get rented. But uh, you also have to learn with leasing people when they're lying. Hopefully, you know, not to the people they work for too often. Going back to your law, um, law career, here, I'd like you to name and not name a client that you had and what you learned not, what not to do from that client. Well, other than Jerry Sprackman's over leverage, and I, and I got to tell you how he did it. It was really cool. Did you lend him money, Paul? Probably. Everybody did. National he, Bank. He, uh, the, the, the two things I learned from him, I already named him, that what not to do is, number one, don't forget about the last 10% of the center. I mean, you guys have heard me for many years saying, you haven't finished till the last 10% is leased. Cause, and you know what? Whether it's a center, it's a condo building, it's an office building, it's almost anything. Your, your profit is usually in that last 10 or 15 percent of the of the property and you know everybody especially when times are good 
Everybody's so anxious to get to the next deal, and they lose focus. Um, one of the things we do at Recan, quite frankly, uh, not as intensely as we used to do because we've just gotten too big, is we meet every Tuesday morning and we go through and everybody gets their turn on the hot seat. Uh, and we actually look at individual properties and say, you know, how much vacant space we got left and what's being done about it. That's usually when the lies start. But no, fiction. I shouldn't call them lies. Fiction stuff. That's not true. But you, you've got to focus on that last 15%. And the other thing is you just can't keep levering. You really do need some equity. You need some money that you don't have to pay back at a given time uh, because no deal ever finishes. I, I shouldn't say that. Some do. Most deals take longer than you ever expect. If you figure it's going to take two years, figure three, and uh, and finance for that that extra period of time. Jerry never did that, and that's that's so when the slightest ill wind fell or you know blew, the cards fell down, and everything. That was the other thing I learned. Don't cross collateralize. Jerry, <laughs> Jerry was a master of cross collateral. Oh yeah, I got that deal's almost finished. You take it as security for my land purchase here. It didn't work out well too well. Um, so, you know, an aversion to debt, and uh, with all due deference to our, uh, one of our main sponsors here, uh, I learned to mistrust banks, to be very honest. I sit on the board of a bank, and I, I, it's, it's a terrible thing to say, but, uh, you know, there, there's that old uh, uh, cliche that bankers will give you an umbrella when the sun is shining, and when it starts raining, they take it away. And... Um, it's not as true, perhaps, as it used to be. Relationships really do matter in Canada. And, and our balance sheet. I'm not talking about RECAN anymore. No, but that's, why <laughs> that's not so true anymore. No, it's not, <laughs> certainly not true for us. But I think it's, it's, it's uh, less true in general in, in Canadian because, you know, there was such a shakeout over, you know, in the early 90s that everybody learned a lot of lessons. And I, I think one of the reasons, quite frankly, that our banking system came through the way it did. There were a lot of reasons, but one of them was that Canadian bankers really never forgot the lessons of the early 90s, and uh, and either did most developers that that you know can remember that far back. I mean, it's hard to think that it was almost 20 years ago. Uh, but um, you know what happened to the financial system in 08 and 09 was terrible for the financial system. But as far as its impact on real estate, it was like a walk in the park compared to the uh, the early 90s and uh, you know, that, that's probably where I learned the most lessons. And, uh, you know, uh, listen, I, I won't name a, a client, to go back to your question. Uh, but I learned, you know what, you got you to gotta be honest. You got to tell the <laughs> truth. Uh, because, you know, it's one thing. I make jokes about lying about leasing and tenants, and that is a joke. But when you're not straightforward with your lender, your partner, your buyer, your tenant, it's going to get you. It's going to get you sooner or later. I mean, I used to run across clients, and, uh, you know, they'd come in, and they'd done their deal with the bank, and i go, well, you've already pledged that asset. And they said, well, they won't know. What do you mean they won't know? <laughs> he said, well, the time they figure it out, all the and you know what? You always eventually get caught. You might keep the balls up in the air for a little while, and you might get away with one or two, but sooner or later, uh, you can't build a company that way. You build a company by being straightforward with people, even if the facts aren't, you know they're not going to like them. Integrity. You, you, you have to have it. It's what the guys who have been around for a long time, 
you know, and I'm not just talking about uh, us at Reacan. There's, we all know who they are. Um, you can take their word for something. They will not lie to you. They won't mislead you. Um, and, you know, it's just not worth it for anybody. Not if you want to be around for a while. So you leave a great law practice. You get into a couple of good years. so good. <laughs> We're not going to get into it. It was pretty good. Uh, okay, you leave a, a, a fine law practice. Right. Uh, you get into uh, into the trust business for a while. The early 90s happen, and out of that comes uh, your vision of Can. And Can starts off as a multifaceted uh, organization in terms of the type of real estate. For those who don't understand, Rio has nothing to do with Brazil, but it's retail industrial office. In Canada. In Canada. So none of them are true anymore. <laughs> so what, what, what was the transformation to be actually become an expert in retail and get out of those other facets, uh, how did that transpire? Uh, that's, that's, that's a very good question, Freddie. Um, you know, when I left law, it was 1987. Not sure I would have left if I would have known that the economy was going to give me exactly two good years. And then the, the world was going to cave in on my head. But sometimes, uh, as I think it did, and certainly in my case, they work out for the best. If, if I would have known, I might have not left law, and who knows what would have happened. Um, but uh, when we started Reacan, and again, you know, I talked a little bit about the early 90s, and you get anybody of my vintage or even Fred's much younger vintage, they'll tell you that early 90s was, was a forming time. It really was a fire. Um, you know, to just, I'll just tell one little story about how bad it was. I was walking up Bay Street or down Bay Street, and I ran into a guy named Jim Bullock. And at the time, Jim Bullock was CEO of Cadillac Fairview Corporation, which was, in its own way, it wasn't owned by a pension fund yet. It was a big public company, and it was big. It was one of the two or three, maybe if not the, sort of top public real estate corporation in Canada. And uh, I knew Jim, and Jim said, Eddie, how are you? I said, how should I be? <laughs> I said, I think we're going to go broke any time now. I said, I, you know, I, I spend all my time, it was probably 1992, Spend all my time talking to bankers, doing workouts. I said, somehow I'm a special guy. The only bankers that talk to me are in special loans. So it's, you know, I'm special. And uh, I said, it's not, a, you know, it's not a lot of fun. You know, if it's not the bankers I'm talking to, it's some tenant who can't pay the rent. I mean, it's just, everything's no good. It's, it's trouble. I said, I know you don't understand that because you're CEO of Cadillac Fairview. And his comment back to me was, just, don't kid yourself. He says, we are all on a conveyor belt. He said, in a conveyor belt, there's a big fire called bankruptcy. He says, the only difference between you and me, and you and me, Eddie, is our relative position on that conveyor belt. Funny thing was, we never did go broke. He did. But <laughs> that's, that's another story. Um, but once we established REACAN and really were forming it in 1994, uh, we turned what was a little uh, real estate mutual fund, which we had to suspend redemptions on and I used to at our annual meeting yesterday I had some very nice elderly gentleman come up to me he says Scottish accent he says he says you know I remember going to meetings in 1993 he says you were dodging fruit Mr. Sunshine I said yeah that's true I, any meeting I didn't get hit by something I was happy uh, because these people had had their redemptions frozen they couldn't get their money uh, for almost two years 1992 and 90 into 93 and I came to them at the end of 1993, and I said, look, we've got two choices. There's only two things to do. 
we can just sell the assets of this mutual fund and whatever you get, you get, and we'll divvy up the money and that'll be the end of the day. And actually I had an opinion of value from uh, CIBC uh, as to what it would be worth. And I said, or we can try this new thing that they've started to do in Australia and they've started to do in the United States and it's called a real estate investment trust because they did not exist in Canada in 1993. There wasn't even a legislative framework. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'll get to your question. Um, Feels like Tuesday morning. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm sorry. It's true. I tend to pontificate. The, every year I get older, I pontificate more. But anyway, it, um, I try not to, but I don't always succeed. Um, the, uh, and, uh, you know, I'll make it short. I won. They agreed to try a REIT. We took a public in January 94. And over the course of 94, we were really trying to figure out what, we do, what, what to do with this company that we now had and how we could make it work. We went public at uh, $12. We raised $23 million in March of 1994 through the good offices of CIBC. Uh, and then the window shut very quickly. And um, so we had this one pot of money. We had a mixed bag of assets that maybe were 90 or $100 million in value on a good day. And uh, we figured, what do we do from here? So over the course of 94, I really had nothing much else to do except to figure out strategy and what to do and what to focus on. And it was really all about risk aversion because, again, you know, the, I'll tell you a joke, uh, a very, very short one. The joke in 1993 and 94, they used to go around on faxes, if anybody remembers those, because we didn't have emails yet, believe it or not, um, was twofold. Uh, if you don't like your children, get even with them, leave them your real estate. That's what people thought of real estate. And the second one was, oh God, let there be one more boom, and this time I promise I won't piss it away. Because everybody had lost everything. So there was a serious risk aversion. When I used to go in and talk to people about uh, investing in, in uh, RECAN, and uh, they'll give us their money, we'll go buy real estate with it, they'd look at me like I you know, had, I don't know, three horns. But, uh, it was a tough sell, so I really had to structure RIACAN to be as risk-averse as it could be. And in looking at the three formats of real estate that our name indicated, retail, industrial, office, it w didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if you could get, in retail what you got was number one, covenant leases. You got retailers who were largely national in scope, that was something we uh, focused on from day one. Today, I think uh, our overall portfolio is about 86 point something percent national tenants. You got long-lived leases. Um, you know, again, I don't know what our average and let's say our top 10 is, but it's probably eight or nine years remaining. We signed 10, 15, 20 year leases with, uh, unless you're Target, in which case it's 60 years, um, you know, with, with the large tenants. So you have a certainty of cash flow from a quality covenant tenant. You also have the, I think, the biggest difference between the three formats. A retail location for a tenant is a profit center. Your tenant is there to make money. And as long as he's making money and doing well in that store, he's afraid to move to the other side of the street, never mind to move two blocks away. If you're an office tenant, who wants to be in downtown Toronto, pick an example, 
There's 20 buildings that are all suitable. They're on the path. They're decent buildings. Just go in any one of them. It becomes a cost exercise. Because, and same with industrial. So in industrial or office space, to to the tenant, it's a cost of doing business. It's a cost center. To a retailer, it's a profit center, which makes the locations much more unique. They're not a commodity location. So when you put all those together, it wasn't hard to come to the conclusion of retail. And there was really one other thing. Pension funds in those days, who even then had all the money, and you know, by the time the 96, 97 uh, rolled around, even in 94, all the big real estate companies I was talking about that were going bankrupt, they all ended up being owned by pension funds sooner or later. Cadillac Fairview, Omers, Cambridge, the case, Oxford eventually, uh, not, I'm sorry, Cadillac Fairview's teachers. Oxford eventually uh, by Omers. It just happened because they were there. And they didn't play in the unenclosed shopping center sector. So that was the other reason. It was just there was nobody there. It was all just a lot of individuals uh, like Murray Frum and Jerry Sprackman and who, um, you know, you could buy stuff from. Well, fundamentally, you built the company by buying individuals' uh, portfolios. True. You did it with the Sprackmans, yeah. the Danny, uh, from Burnett, uh, Oshawa Group, basically. Don't mention Burnett's too much, will you? <laughs> Some of this, those didn't work out too well. Well, actually, that, that goes to the next question, basically. What was the, the, we started off amongst some other small REITs at the time. Yeah. What was there were three that basically all started at once. Okay, that yeah. would be Real Fund, ourselves, and Crete? Correct. So what was the... the one that wasn't a REIT, which was Centercorp. Centercorp. It was around the same time as well. So what was the trans, uh, transaction that actually differentiated REITCAN? What was the move that you feel put us in a different league in terms of, the, of those, if we believe we're in a, a different league? And at least Crete and... Uh, well, we, we, we clearly ended up being in a different league because uh, Real Fund doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Crete were about four times their size, maybe five times, I don't, you know, I don't know exactly. Uh, and uh, Center Corp ended up being the subject of a hostile takeover. It is now First Capital, uh, which uh, is, you know, is Dory here? It's about a quarter our size. He got very insulted at a CIBC conference where I uh, said to him, somebody uh, asked me in the crowd, he said, would you, would you buy First Capital? I said, sure. Be a nice tuck-in for us. <laughs> he, he hasn't forgiven me for that. That was like a year ago. But... Uh, Fucking, he gets no respect, Ed. Yeah, well, so. <laughs> that's the point. He, you know, that's his theme and, and he gets no respect. But uh, I would say what's, what differentiated us, Fred, was that we paid a lot of... Uh, we understood we number one. Uh, you know, I'll compare ourselves to uh, to Real Fund first. We understood we were in the real estate business. Uh, I uh, Fred Fred joined. Uh, he wasn't quite employee number two, but he sort of feels like employee number two. Joined us in April '95. By the end of '94, I figured, you know, we had to be in retail. That's what we were going to do. Uh, and uh, it didn't take me long to say, okay, we got to start being responsible for our own leasing got to be responsible for our own destiny. I need somebody that understands the actual nuts and bolts of how, you know, uh, putting tenants in, in a place starts. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have been introduced to Fred. And uh, we actually, I'm sorry for telling funny stories, but uh, we, uh, we had a meeting to decide if, you know, I could talk Fred into coming in. And he was employed elsewhere. And so he didn't want, you know, to be known that he was going to meet me. I said, you know what? 
I got two really good baseball tickets. The Blue Jays are playing this Thursday at lunch. And, you know, this, in those days, the Blue Jays were really good. But, and, uh, you know, there's going to be like 30,000, 40,000 people there. And everybody would be wearing a suit because that's who went to baseball games at Thursday at noon. It was suits. And uh, there we were sitting there having a nice chat. I actually had four seats so we could sit the two in the middle, very private. And then they, we uh, were on the Jumbotron. <laughs> it wasn't the I said, after we saw ourselves on the Jumbotron, I said, you may as well come now. I mean, <laughs> the cat's out of the bag. So anyway, uh, um, you know, and Fred really gave us, and then, and then we started to build a team from there, realizing, and we actually, because when we started, everything was outsourced. That was actually the business model. I wanted to outsource everything. And uh, I realized that that necessarily wasn't the right business model, and you know, we, we, we evolved into really being in the real estate business. And it was also that focus on, on retail. If you remember, Real Fund was diversified. Crete was diversified. Uh, so, the, you know, you stay diversified. You never build up an expertise, in my opinion, in one area where you can come to dominate it. Um, and thirdly, uh, we were the first to become self-managed. Um, Center Corp, who I mentioned, never became self-managed. Um, you know, the, the biggest issue in the hostile takeover was uh, buying out uh, the management's contract because it was externally managed. We, we did that, uh, actually Freddie was already there, did July 1995, within a year sort of after we started. I said, you know what? Everybody in the United States that's being successful is self-managed. You have to totally align management with the shareholders, with my mother, and um, you can't work at cross-purposes. Uh, without mentioning names, there are some REITs today that are still not self-managed. And if you look hard on them, they make a lot of mistakes. And if you look hard at the governance, somebody could say, you know, it's hard when you're getting paid just for buying assets to maybe take the same care in picking those assets as when you're getting paid by, based on the performance of those assets afterwards. You really don't want to mention them? I won't mention <laughs> I won't mention Tommy's a good friend of mine. Um, it's a problem. It's a problem. And I think what we did is we figured out all those issues and we're prepared to take this, make the, you know, I'll call them sacrifices. They don't look like sacrifices 15 years later. Uh, but I used to go out for breakfast with the CEO of CenterCorp, who shall remain nameless in case somebody knows Peter Cohen here. Um, <laughs> and you get to a certain age, you don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, you know, he, we used to go out for breakfast every couple of months to compare notes, and he used to yell at me because I make him look bad. I was I was getting a salary, and getting some stock options, thank God, and uh, and he had this management contract, and and you know people would compare him unfavorably to what we were doing at Reacan, and I think as a result of our figuring out those things, we became much more market acceptable, and we got better support as as the next few years rolled by from the capital markets than really any of the other guys did. And that gave us the opportunity to do the one big deal that really, I think, was, was the step. I mean, all those deals you mentioned with Burnett, with Fromm, with Sprackman, were stepping stones to get us a bit of a critical mass. Uh, but the deal that, that really uh, got us to a, to a new level and really starting out above all the other levels was, uh, was a hostile takeover of one of the original three, a company called Real Fund. Uh, diversified read. He made some, I thought, real errors in judgment. Uh, I had gone to law school with the poor guys, and him I really won't mention his name. Um, 
No, he yeah. was he was with at LePage with both John and I. Was he? Yeah. 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 But he was a lawyer. He went to law school with me. <laughs> Successful lawyer, eh? Okay. Well. <laughs> Uh, anyway, and I went to see him, and I said, you know, we should really put our two companies together. And he said, well, you know, that, that could make some sense, Eddie, but who's going to be CEO? I said, well, I sort of thought me. And uh, he didn't agree. Uh, anyway, you know. I think, I think his words were, but I like my job. <laughs> and they, they, they were his words. And uh, I told him he'd find another job. John would hire him again. But... Um, Anyway, it, it turned into a really quite, it was quite an ugly battle. I mean, it played out very much in the newspapers. Newspapers like that kind of stuff. I learned to be a little more careful uh, with what I say to reporters. The uh, uh, takeover battle got a little uglier after a reporter uh, in an interview asked me, well, you know, have you got jobs slotted for the various executives uh, at Real Fund? I said, no. He said, no, you don't? I said, no. No, I haven't even thought about where I would put them, and I don't even know if I got a place for them. Headline, sunshine to pink slip entire executive staff at Real Fund. That really made it real friendly after that. And uh, But you know what, that almost, because they, they were about the same size as Recan was at the time, and that virtually doubled us in size. Uh, can I give one more plug to CIBC? We were advised on that uh, entire acquisition by CIBC. Um, and it was David Monjo. He was uh, the M&A guy. He was terrific. And uh, he, I think he made so much money from these guys. He now lives in Monaco, is it? Yeah. <laughs> he commutes where, to London. Where we all should go one day and live. Uh, but anyway, um, I think that move then really differentiated from everybody else because at that point, we were bigger than everybody else. And I think, you know, going back to where I started, we just kept working harder. Every year, Recan goes away for... Uh, two strategy sessions, really. Uh, one in the fall, where we really focus. It's two parts. We we finalize a budget for the upcoming year, which actually the guys give you an idea how seriously we take it. It's now June. The budget process for 2012 has commenced. And uh, in November, it's basically all finished before we take it into our board for approval. Uh, we have an off-site where we approve the budget uh, as a group. And figure out the strategies we got to employ to, number one, make sure we make that budget, both from a personal personnel, do we have the, the capabilities to actually do what we want to do, and, you know, what do we have to do corporately in order to make sure we can achieve or better that budget. And uh, we, we look at one, two-year, sometimes even three-year, we don't like to go that far out, sort of strategies, the way we see the, the business environment changing, the way we see the world changing, and what should RECAN be doing about it to either protect itself from those changes or to take advantage of those changes. And then we get together again uh, in uh, sort of late winter after our uh, year-end uh, financials are all finished and published. And, uh, and we, that's our property offsite where it's getting harder, although high tech is helping, right? The last one was good. Uh, because we used to put books together, our poor asset management people would spend I don't know how long, and, and it was getting to, you know, it was only four or five pages on each property, but when you get up to 300 centers, it's a lot of pages. And uh, they were so big, nobody could carry them on the flights, so we used to FedEx it down. One year, it got hung up at customs, and we'd actually spend a couple of days, and we'd go through virtually every property that we owned looking for challenges, uh, 
problems we saw in the future, and quite frankly, more important, opportunities. Um, what we did on Avenue Road with, uh, with Tribute uh, came out of a meeting like that. Uh, what we've done in a lot of places and what we're going to do uh, over the next few years, hopefully, uh, come out of meetings like that. And that's where we decided, made a big decision back in 05 and said, you know what? Small town malls don't work for us. Hopefully they'll work for Primaris, but they don't work for us. And uh, I think they were labeled money pits. We used to shovel in money and never got much income back. You had to shovel in money just to keep the income the same. And um, we did uh, two strategies actually over those over two years, 04 and 05. Number one, we decided to focus our assets on the big six markets in Canada. That's where all the growth was, uh, and that's where the tenants wanted to be. Uh, and number two, to actually sell those malls. And we, we actually sold 10% of our portfolio in 2005. Um, and, you know, we never looked back on that. Took us a year or two to recover when you lose that, that amount of income, but we have a far better portfolio, uh, and, and we, we call constantly. So what question was I answering? Transformative uh, deal. <laughs> Hostile takeover of real fund. Okay. okay. And, and not that those properties... I went, do know. And, I, and not sometimes those, I know. You better just stop it. And yeah. not those properties that went to RetroCon. That was the that was the, the latter part. Yeah, yeah, that's when I stopped. Yeah, yeah the Retrocom did buy bulk, the bulk of those 05 portfolios. Yeah. So we talked about your mom being a unit holder. Uh, your father, uh, like my father, was a builder. Yeah. Um, and a successful one. And what valuable lesson did you learn from 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 the old man? I mean, you always had that great quote about about our business. Yeah. Which yeah. I love, which is worth yeah, repeating. Yeah, no, it was a great quote. I, uh, my, my father was starting to get sick. He passed away, actually, almost 15 years ago. And uh, as we were just starting Ria Can, um, he, he wasn't well, but, you know, he was, he was all there. And uh, I was trying to explain to him what I was doing at Ria Can. And he really was having trouble understanding it, which meant I probably wasn't explaining it very well. And I think I finally explained it well. And he looked at me and says, oh, he says, I think I understand it. People give you money. You buy real estate with it. You make a living from that. And you don't have to give them their money back. I said, that's right. He says, that's good business, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> and it's essentially what we do. That's why equity capital is so important. They want their money back. That's why the stock exchange exists. Uh, but I think what I learned from my father, the, the biggest lesson, Freddie, was just hard work. You know, he came as an immigrant, didn't speak English, um, didn't really have any skills, you know, showed up at a construction site one day. As, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's not a unique story. A lot of people started that way. Showed up at a construction site, and uh, he said, what do you need? They said, well, we need a painter. I'm a painter. <laughs> he was a painter like I'm, you know, a hairstylist. But uh, <laughs> um, he learned. You know, he got one of the other painters to show him, and he worked hard, and he learned and learned and made himself an invaluable employee. And within uh, two years, the entrepreneurial spirit was there, and uh, he bought two lots, started building houses. In those days on spec, he dug a hole, and, but it was the early 50s, and you know what? A lot of people buying houses. And um, it was just a value of hard work. He, particularly in the building season, uh, or building season, as my dad would call it, uh, you know, from sort of middle, end of April through till October. He'd leave before I ever woke up 
and he'd come back nine, ten o'clock at night when it got dark. And uh, you know, you learn a lot from that for sure. A um, lot of skepticism and cynicism about Reacan doing business in the United States. Uh, a lot of Canadian companies, especially well retailers, never succeeded there. Uh, it's been a couple of years since uh, Reacan has now put more than its toe in, probably put up to its ankle. Yeah, good, good analogy. Good analogy. Yeah. Um, what's, what's different about Reacan going to the States that, that uh, others um, have failed at? What's the secret? I think the, uh, the secret, if there is one, uh, was a couple of things. Uh, well, three. It's always three when I give an answer. Uh, number one was just timing. Um, we, we have been really looking at uh, making an entry into the United States. Some of you remember we made like a false start back in 2006. And uh, we knew at the size that Reacan was, uh, there just wasn't really enough uh, to buy in Canada. And, you know, development takes a long time. Um, it was just tough to keep the kind of growth that we wanted in this country. So we knew from about 06 that we had to look at the United States, but we put it off uh, until the middle of 09, almost, uh, I guess, two years ago, uh, because the question we kept asking ourselves was, what are we bringing to the United States that gives us an, a competitive advantage? I think if more of the retailers and more of the developers that went in in the past and, and failed had asked themselves that question, um, they would have done better. And in 06 and 07 and 08, we kept asking ourselves that question, and we said, nothing. They all got money. They all know the market better than we do. They all have just as good, if not better, relationships with defendants than we do. Um, what the hell do we bring to the table? Dumb money? Well, you know, that's not a great spot to be in. Certainly not a spot Reacan ever wants to be in. Uh, in 09, the world had changed. Um, there was no money in the United States. Uh, all the REITs in the United States, big guys had cut their distributions uh, or were paying their, even Simon Property Group, the largest REIT in the United States, was paying their distributions in shares. They'd stopped giving cash back to their shareholders. Uh, our good friends at Kimco, uh, whose stock had been at $50, $60 uh, in 2006 and 2007, uh, had to issue 100 million shares at $7.70 to stay afloat. And uh, their stock is, I don't know, 18 or 19 bucks today. I mean, it, they, the, the recovery is not complete down there. So number one, we had capital. Our capital markets were in much better uh, position. Uh, our stocks had recovered way better than theirs has had. Recan, for one, had not uh, cut its distribution, so I think that provided support. And our banks were in great shape uh, and were okay to lend. So the timing, I think, was secret number one. Uh, number two was that we really did, you know, we almost went back to Reacan's roots. And we said, what is the most risk-averse stuff, call shopping center stuff, uh, stuff to buy in the United States? And, you know, the answer wasn't hard to come by because it took us back to Recan's roots back in 94, 95 before we got into power centers, which was supermarket anchored, convenience slash neighborhood slash community shopping centers, 100,000 footers, 
the difference was, you know, Canada, supermarkets are supermarkets, supermarkets are all okay, they all will pay the rent, they all make a good living. United States, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, we did a lot of studies. For example, uh, a fact you don't need to know, but it's interesting, 80% uh, of all food uh, sold in Canada uh, is sold in food supermarkets. Uh, in the United States, a similar number is approaching 60%. And where, where are they buying food? Costco, super Walmarts, super Targets, um, you know, dollar well, stores. So Walmart is the largest purveyor of food in the United States. Larger, Walmart is the largest grocer in the United States, exactly. So you had to be careful who your food supermarkets were, and we, we made the decision, we, you had to pick the number one or number two supermarket in the given market. Third, and, and we did a lot of work to understand who that was in our first chosen market, because the third thing we did is say, look, the United States is a big place. Um, I mean, Texas, which you know we're, we're sort of in having a, a uh, you know rapture with right now, um, it has 26 million people. You know, it's 80% of Canada, and that's just Texas. Uh, so it's a huge place. The Northeast, which was the first area we focused on, has you know in the seven states we're focused on, has double almost double, about 60 million people, almost double Canada's population. And it's more urban, it's more dense, the people have more disposable income in most cases. Um, so, you know, there's, you, you have to focus on an area. You can't just say, give me the United States. And, and you put together risk aversion, focus. Uh, we weren't there to buy, to steal properties. We weren't there to, you know, take advantage of an opportunity, uh, buy a half empty shopping center for pennies on the pound because we knew we didn't have the talent or have the competitive advantage to fix it. If the local guy living in Phoenix couldn't fix it, who the heck did we think we would be that we could fix it? We knew we couldn't. So we wanted to buy stable, great assets. And I guess the last thing we did, it's the fourth reason, sorry, um, was try to pick a partner. Again, we didn't have the local relationships, we didn't have the local knowledge, and real estate's a very local business. So rather than just blundering in ourselves and putting out offers, uh, the first thing we did was pick a partner. Luckily, because of the Financial Times, we had lots of people asking us to dance, and we were able to actually pick. And um, you know, we picked a partner that we thought would do the the job for us, which you know they have. Uh, in the space of 18 months in the Northeast, um, we have 24 uh, shopping centers. I think. I don't know, close to 4 million square feet, our balance sheet. Uh, average cap rate, probably 7.5 because we started buying at 8.5. The mark, market today on IS is probably sub-7. And, and uh, not the plug, but the occupancy. Thank you. <laughs> um, average occupancy rate, because these were quality assets, was 95%. To show you that we picked the right partner in the right locations, occupancy rate at March 31st on those assets is 98%. Which you is know, better than Canada. It's actually higher than our occupancy rate in Canada, and how many portfolios in the United States can you do that? And then we went and did the same thing in Texas. Pick, picked a partner there, uh, bought a bunch of assets. you got to appreciate it. We, got, we started out by buying a bunch of assets from our partners because they both needed money. So we were able, I mean, you know, Fred and Jeff would sit down with their portfolio, and Jonathan Gitlin, and literally cherry-pick and say, okay, here are the... Here's the, here's the top 20. I think you used to rank them A, B, C. 
<laughs> so we say, well, put the BCs over there and let's see uh, what we can buy the A's for. And, uh, you know, it, it didn't always work out that great for our partner because eventually some analysts said, holy shit, they sold all their best properties to Rike, or at least 80% of them. And, um, you know, that that's what we were able to do because of the timing, uh, because, you know, people down there just couldn't get money. So it all worked out together, and I think that that's the secret. And uh, I think we just have to keep our discipline as we become a very popular buyer down there. Uh, and we are popular these days. So let, let's get out of the Ria Camulu for a second and talk sure. about Ed Sunshine. And for those who don't know, Ed is an avid reader and a lover of, of history and fiction and big moviegoer. Um, uh, Cineplex is very lucky to have him. That's why we're Cineplex's largest landlord, yeah. so I can get a pass. <laughs> so let's, let's for just for curiosity, uh, a fictional character that you admire and what do you admire about him or her? Now, now that, that's a leading question to which Fred knows the answer before he asks it. Because we have spent many parts of our Tuesday morning meetings spouting and quoting the wisdom of the Godfather. And I think actually somebody gave me a great present once. I think it was perhaps you, Jordy. Uh, and I think that was called that, the wisdom of Godfather. Godfather to me, Godfather 1 in particular, some people think Godfather 2 was better. Uh, Nobody thinks Godfather 3 is better. No. <laughs> it, there, there is a toss-up between 1 and 2. Uh, but Godfather 1 had Marlon Brando, uh, and I thought that made the difference. And that, that was, that's probably my favorite movie of all time. I've only seen it, I don't know, 50 times. And, you know, I sometimes say to the guys, I say, you know, all the wisdom you really need in business, it's in that movie. You, you don't have to go to business school. Just watch that movie a lot, but pay attention. And there, there's so many lessons to take. And um, give us one. <laughs> only one. Okay. Well, you give it, well, yeah, I mean, well we okay. can go on until nine o'clock. I'll, I'll, I'll go with one. <laughs> and uh, and you had to really pay attention. And uh, has anybody seen the movie? Let's let's see how many males. Put up your hand if you've seen the movie. <laughs> Thank okay, God. you two haven't. <laughs> It's, it's really not just a guy's movie. It's a great movie. Okay, there's a lot of shooting and killing, but it's a, it's a good movie. Anyway, in the movie, those of you who have seen it will recall, and it was fairly near the beginning, uh, there was a meeting of uh, Marlon Brando, the godfather, with his sons and some of his associates, and uh, this guy who'd come to ask favors called the Turk, Scalazzo. <laughs> and he was asking Marlon Brando to uh, invest money in his new scheme, and provide protection with the police and with the judges, and, and he would do everything else, the Turk. And this new scheme, by the way, was smuggling heroin uh, and distributing heroin in the United States, which the Godfather's uh, family was not involved in. In fact, it was a fairly new business at this time. I guess it was 1946, 1947, uh, just after World War II, and um, you know it wasn't. Uh, didn't exist as a business, and the Turk wanted to start this business. And uh, Marlon Brando didn't want to do it. You know, he uh, he uh, you know made the comment. He says, you know, my judges, my police. He says, you know, they won't be there for this. This is a dirty business. You know, we don't have to do that kind of business. And uh, you know, you want me? Would you call small change a million dollars? You want me to just give it to you? And Salute. and he says, uh, the Tataglia family. The Tataglia family will guarantee the money. And uh, Sonny, Santino, his older son, 
said to him, you telling me? He starts yelling at the Turk and trying to get more things. And at the end of the meeting, uh, Godfather said to the Turk, he said, he says, as you can see, he says, I indulge my children. Uh, and he ended the meeting. He wished him well in his new venture because it doesn't compete with anything he does. And he showed him out the door, and then he turned around, and he stuck his finger in his son. James Kahn played the character. San Sonny's face, he says, never let anyone outside the family know what you're thinking. And, of course, that one statement by Sonny caused the rest of the movie because the Turk figured if he could kill the father, he could make a deal with Sonny because Sonny wanted to do this deal. And he thought being in drug business maybe was a good business. And then they tried to assassinate the father and everything really flowed out of that one little scene. So you've got to be careful what you say and who you say it to. And uh, there's just it's a great lesson. You've got to know who you can trust and who you can't trust and who you can confide in. And, uh, you know, when you're in a meeting, let the CEO talk and don't say anything. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> you never knew that. <laughs> no, no. I, <laughs> yeah, that's where it comes from. <laughs> anyway, I, I just think that was one of the greatest movies of all time, and I could go on and on, but I won't. Okay, we're kind of running out of time, but one, one more question. God, we are. Um, you are extremely involved in, in, in philanthropical, uh, um, a million different boards, including, of course, RBC. Sorry, Paul. Um, and uh, They never asked me. <laughs> you, you've, you've got this, this business that you're running, uh, uh, which is a fairly large one on a day-to-day -day business, uh, on a day basis. And uh, how, can you, how do you compartmentalize? How do you organize yourself? How do you filter and take in all that information from all these different facets when sitting on, you know, the hospital or, or, or um, any of these charitable foundations that you are involved in? How do you manage that process? Because as you become more successful, you get busier, and time is the most precious commodity you have. You tell me that. <laughs> and, you, and you, as much as you've tried to teach me to say no, you still haven't been able to say no. I can't say no. It's one of my failings um, <laughs> because time... You know, it is, it is very precious. They don't make more of it for you. So what's yeah. a valuable lesson you can teach um, the younger people in this, op uh, in this office, in this, in this grouping want, area? I'm really not good at that. I'm not, I'm not, I, I, uh, I mean, that's, that's why uh, I, my golf game stinks, uh, because I don't have enough time to ever take a lesson or practice. So the few times I can actually get to the golf course, I just say, oh, I'll just go and play, because I don't have time to do anything else. I'm not as good as I should be at managing time. I know what I should do. And I think I do some things right where I prioritize, and you really have to prioritize everything. Uh, for me, outside of my family, uh, Reacan for the last 15, 16 years, it takes first place. And, um, you know, everything else really goes down from there. Uh, so the only good lesson I can say is you just got to, you got to know what's really important to spend your time on, and, and whether that's a particular business when you're involved in a few things, uh, or a particular, you know, uh, activity within that business. You really, you just got to figure out what's important to do. I see lots of people who get drowned in, oh, I got 42 tasks to do, and they don't get any of them done by the end of the day. You see, it's easy when you're number two, because what your priority becomes mine, so I know what to do. 
But when you're when 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 someone's not controlling the reins, it's it can, it can, it's very hard to it's, it's to sometimes hard. do that. It's hard. So. The hardest thing I have to do uh, every week, every day, every month, uh, sometimes every year, because uh, I you know set out my goals, and, and I guess that's what you got to do. You really got to spend a lot of time thinking about what are you trying to accomplish in different parts of your life. Um, and I spend a lot of time thinking about that, usually when I'm swinging the golf club, swinging so well. Um, you know, uh, uh, and then you got to prioritize. I mean, I knew uh, at uh, when you and I used to talk about it, when we were sitting uh, down in Florida over Christmas in 2009, 2010. I knew 2009 was now behind us. It was dreadful. We had a huge job to do. The only way we were going to do it was make $1 billion in acquisitions in 2010. So we had to figure out how to do it, how to get the capital to do it, and what kind of capital it should be. And then we had to, you know, motivate and work with Mr. Gitlin to actually get it done. I mean, last year, uh, I bragged about it at our AGM yesterday, we bought 49 individual shopping centers from Canada to the United States, totaling $1 billion. We got it done. And, um, you know, I keep going back to hard work, getting it done. Uh, there's there's a management consultant we use for those November meetings that we uh, describe, a guy named Doug Emerson. So I sometimes use the names of guys I admire, too. And um, we were walking out of a November strategy meeting once, and he, uh, I said, so what do you think, Doug? What do you think of the strategy? He said, Eddie, I've been to a 1,000 meetings like this. He says, you get, you know, a dozen people in the room that know their business, 98% of the time, you're going to come up with a pretty good strategy. He says, you got a good strategy there. He says, but 90% of those people don't execute. They don't execute that strategy. He says, once you got the strategy, you got to figure out the individual steps to actually execute. And, that, and that's really how I try to prioritize. I mean, like I say, 2010 for me, as poor Jonathan will know, every morning I'd walk into his office and say, what would you buy today? And it was only, you know, 8 o'clock. Uh, but he knew what was important. And um, so that, that's how I do it. You just got to prioritize and you got to try to do it well. Okay. And hope you got them right. Okay, so um, we're going to open it up for questions. Uh, first person who asks a question wins a bottle of wine. Very expensive bottle of wine. Uh, Alex, you can see at the back there is the microphone. She'll both have the microphone and get you the wine. So our first, first questioner wins a bottle of wine. And come on, that's it. There you go. This is already more questions than I had at my AGM yesterday. So. <laughs> um, I wanted to take you back to the... And you're allowed to ask Fred questions, by the oh, way. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, this is for, for both of you. Okay, good. Um, you said that the last 10% of the property is where you make all your profit, right? Usually. So if you could rent 110% of a property, would you make a considerable dent in uh, your distributable cash? Uh, if we could rent 110% of a property, that's right. Uh, we might have some problems with the guys who we rented the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, not necessarily, because there's a dead asset sitting over your head. Now, the province of Ontario. You're not, you're not trying to sell a solar. Uh, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm just asking because I know I'm not the first person to ask you that, and I just, just wanted to know what your position was on it. The, the position is that extra 10% would go into higher rents because you have more tenants than space available. So you would get that in increased revenues because you'd have competition on every space you have. Now, having said that, we're always looking how to extract more revenue 
from a property that's already 100% leased, because I think that may be what you mean. And that, right. that revenue can be from advertising. That revenue can be from uh, uh, Wi-Fi. There's somebody here that will, I made happy saying that. Uh, setting up Wi-Fi systems. Um, there you are. No, that's not you. Um, you, you know, we, uh, we used to have a whole program, and, and, and we actually do generate from our property spread. I don't know what the number is, but it's significant. Uh, seven figures, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's in the millions of dollars. As well as going back in terms. We'll generate, we call it ancillary revenue. But also looking at the fact that a shopping center typically has 25% coverage. You'll be hearing more and more about how Reacan's going to be extracting value from the land that they own under those shopping centers. By building up. Great. Thanks. Next question, which is actually gratis. You get absolutely nothing but the glory of asking the question. Get a Hello. prize for first question. That's, that's unique. I have um, two questions, actually. They're related both to uh, anchor deals. Um, I was wondering, I mean, obviously the, the competition between Target and Walmart is, is very intense. And um, you're doing deals both with both of them. I was just wondering whether you, if, uh, how, do, how do you manage your uh, relationship with, uh, with these two tenants? Have they ever complained about uh, the fact that... Uh, There's a manager of relationships, right? <laughs> Sitting right on my right. What's, what's your secret, I guess, uh, for doing deals with both of them? The, the secret is, is I have Jeff lie to both of them. No, <laughs> the, the, the secret is, is that when you deal in good faith with one of them, um, make sure you're dealing in good faith with, with uh, the other one on another, on another piece of dirt or an on another location. We have enough, uh, fortunately, that at any given time we could have five deals going with one, five deals going with the other. And when somebody steps up first to that, um, the property that you're dealing with, um, we'll definitely deal with that person first unless the other wants, one wants to pay more money. No, no, no. <laughs> no the fact is... The, the answer is integrity <laughs> and playing with an open book. If Fred, <laughs> unless they want to pay a lot more money. No. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I can tell you we've got a couple of fantastic urban sites right now that uh, Fred took to, to uh, Walmart um, uh, actually, before Target announced, uh, it was it was late last fall, and we didn't know what exactly. I mean, we'd had many discussions with Target, but we still didn't know how it was going to quite play out. And uh, he had mentioned those two sites, and uh, Walmart had said we want those two sites. We haven't finalized deals on them. Uh, we're still just in the you know the tail end of of those negotiations right now, I think. And um, even though. The guy from Walmart, I think, calls Fred every week and says, those sites are still mine, right? And Fred says, right, but you better hurry and finish the deal. Uh, but he will not discuss those sites with Target. And if Target called him, he would say, look, I've, I've done a handshake deal with Walmart, and that's got to play itself out. And before I can even talk to you about it, I believe that's a... That's absolutely true. They're, those are... All kidding aside. Those, are, those are for Walmart. Everybody. Those are for Walmart to lose if they're turned down at their committee. But when we sit down in good faith... And or we're they don't get their pencil sharp enough. But if we're talking good faith with, with any tenancy, um, in, in, in the deal that uh, we announced yesterday, which is conditional, um, uh, with Target for building their first Greenfield uh, location in, in Toronto, in Canada, um, there was another uh, party at the table, and they were uh, 
languishing. They were taking just too long to get things done. So we felt we were justified to do that. And the other party's not happy, but we're dealing with them in four other locations. So it's a balancing act because guess what? Well, the funny what? thing is, they, they haven't they actually now come back, that other party who shall remain nameless and not Walmart, uh, and said, well, can you still put me on the site? Maybe on a third Absolutely. floor? That, I mean, that's that, absolutely that's true. Uh, in, the, in the same way, we're Metro's largest landlord. Outside of Loblaws, we're their largest landlord. Being everybody's largest landlord, you cannot uh, not have enough integrity to deal with them and tell them what, what you're up to because... You're going to be meeting them all the time when we're purchasing, developing, et cetera. So. And if they think you're using their offer to play it you know, against somebody else, it's, you're going to pay for it. I have a related question to uh, sort of the anchor deals uh, uh, with a specific reference to the flat rates that uh, a lot of the American anchor deals are used to from down south, uh, long-term flat rates. Uh, how, what was the process from your point of view in negotiating um, and bringing them back to Canadian reality? Uh, was, it, was it a painful process? When, when do you say, you know... I, I, I think there's a misconception of what the Canadian reality is. Historically, all our pension friends who have uh, Eaton stores, from, from those who remember Eaton stores or Simpson stores, remember, or Hudson's Bay stores or Sears stores, those companies were either actually the partners in the development they were actually paying less than, than, than any net rent whatsoever. They could not carry themselves. All the money was being made from the ancillary tenants. This business about Target being the, the flat payer of long-term leases, as does Walmart here, as does Costco, if you're lucky enough to get, to get them in a lease situation, as does Home Depot, this is nothing new. That is actually uh, uh, something that is done across North America, as well as they do have... Uh, if these deals were to stand on their own, there's a return that's good enough that, that you could afford to build them out without the CRU. That was the key to the wave and the introduction of power centers. And one of the m several big ways they differed from enclosed malls, your anchor tenants paid the freight. You weren't going to get growth out of them, but they, you could make a return, as Fred says, whereas the department store anchors in the enclosed malls, you gave them the land, essentially. The deals that all the deals, all these new built Walmarts that Walmart doesn't own or they're partners with other people out there are, are the only difference between them and Target is instead of 60 years, they have 100. It's that's not widely talked about, but that's, that's actually what's happening out there. Okay, last question. Just to the front here, and we'll make this the last one. Um, as an urbanist, and because we're the Urban Land Institute, I wanted to ask you about. Um, I think many of us have been watching the project at Portland and, and Richmond uh, in anticipation of that mixed-use type of development taking hold. And right. obviously, it's something that you had enough faith in to at least try it. But I didn't want to ask you about that. I wanted to ask you about the shops at Don Mills, um, mainly because I visited recently, and uh, I know for Cadillac Fairview, that was a real risky venture to get into a an entirely different format of a, a more urban mall in a semi-suburban location. And I just wonder what you think of that type of direction or whether it's something that um, might catch hold or, or not. Well, Recan has the largest um, center of that sort in Canada, in, in Montreal, in the South Shore. And it is, it's, doing, uh, it's doing very well. Say it in French, the name of the place. No, I can't. Okay. So pick on. <laughs> B30, 1030. 
Um, there's a lot of elements to that shopping center that have been done correctly where Don Mills wasn't. For example, there is parking underground with, with stairwells leading up so you can come into the middle of the shopping center when the weather's inclement. And, and uh, it's the same streetscape, it's the same, the, uh, there's, it, it's very similar, but on a much larger scale. And um, I think the problem with Don Mills Center is, and, and this is from the tenants talking to us, there's nothing that unique about it, save and except for some open greenfield space in the middle, and there's not enough, uh, I guess, economies in terms of bringing people there to make it a, a, a different shopping experience. They're also only two or three miles away from Fairview Mall, uh, so he couldn't get a theater. A center of that type, a lifestyle, you need a, a movie theater. He couldn't get into Go Chapters, both of which are in Fairview and felt they would only be, and this is Cadillac Fairview couldn't get them, uh, felt they would only be cannibalizing their own stores. So uh, I think these types of centers are fantastic for the city. Uh, but they really are a fragile creation. They have to be in the exact right location with the right tenant mix. I think when you, the, the uh, deal that Fred was talking about earlier, and it's not the middle of the city, but it's St. Clair and Weston Road, uh, where we're gonna have that target anchor. I think when you see it, uh, you're gonna hopefully agree, and we don't have a theater or a bookstore, so maybe I'm talking against myself, uh, but it's early days, um, that you know, hopefully we got it a little more right than that one. There's just a lot of things, in our opinion, they did wrong there. Can I can I do do one more two minute thing, or do you want to get us? No, I think here? we're done. Fine. I'm I'm a tough host, but I'm gonna kind of keep these. Yeah, I'm very aware of, of Ed's schedule as well. I I mean, coming tonight was considering the circumstances. I think was a phenomenal thing to do, and and speaks volumes about him and, and the team he's got around him. The things I learned, and I'm just going to hand it over to Mark, but I wanted to thank them both personally because I phoned them up and begged them to come, and, and they were very gracious. Uh, three things I learned were trust and truth are the same thing, and if you engender trust in, from people, you're actually going to go a long way in life. Hard work is a common theme of everyone we ever have at this series. Uh, I have never seen anybody on either side, the questioner or que the person asking the questions or the person responding, and asking the questions is quite tough, so I, I thank Fred for that, because that's not an easy job, but hard work comes through all the time. And then, uh, you know, a business, our business, any business is a team sport. So you surround yourself with people who feel as passionately about the business as you do, and if you know anything about the Rio Can team, you'll know that actually there's a shared value amongst all the people there, and it's quite clear the way they interact that they are a, a team. So I also heard that they didn't want that property in Windsor. So for my brokerage folks in here, Hugh and Matt, they definitely, they started off the whole thing saying they didn't want that center in Windsor. So tag them on the way out. I'm over, handing over to you, Mark. After uh, John's uh, thank yous, I'll be, I'll be short. Um, uh, as uh, on behalf of Goodman's, which was delighted to uh, sponsor this event, along with the other sponsors, uh, also as chair, of you, Electron, I want to thank uh, Ed and Fred. Um, as John said, we've been doing this uh, fireside chat type event for I think three years now. It's uh, different uh, from our other events, which tend to focus on a specific theme, and it really consists of a leader from the industry uh, telling stories and, uh, and all of us learning from those stories. And Ed, I think it's a, a measure of, uh, of how good a storyteller you are, uh, but also a measure of, uh, 
of the RioCan team that you've got Fred here not only asking you questions, but uh, three or four of your senior management team here listening to stories that I'm sure they've heard many times in the past. So, uh, <laughs> no more than two or three dozen times. <laughs> so thank you both very much. There are gifts for both of you, which we'll make sure you get on the uh, on the way out. I did want to just take a minute. Um, I know we all want to get out and enjoy what's left of of the nice weather. I did just, did just want to take a little uh, moment to uh, tell you a bit about what's going on uh, with ULI Toronto. In addition to the many programs we run, uh, there's. Uh, Part of uh, ULI's mission is to engage in some outreach activities. It's part of ULI's mission to try to promote the responsible use of land and sustaining communities. Uh, just to mention a couple, there's event, an event uh, in a couple of weeks, I think June 22nd, uh, where our young leaders uh, group are going to be doing a tree planting exercise at uh, Evergreen uh, Brickworks. So the, the younger people of you in the crowd, if you're not a Wild Gene member yet, there's an opportunity to join and be part of a a tree planting exercise. And the other thing that went on just recently actually, which we're quite proud of, is uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, we did a uh, technical advisory panel uh, that looked at the revitalization of the Weston Road Village area. And for those of you who aren't familiar with uh, a, a technical advisory panel or a TAPS program, there's a long, uh, a long history in the United States where the Urban Land Institute has existed for many years of its members uh, devoting their time uh, their expertise to uh, looking at land use issues and challenges in an area. And a couple of weeks ago, in collaboration with the City of Toronto and uh, Metrolinx, uh, a number of our members, Mark Gustlitz was one of them, and I'm, there's perhaps others here, engaged in a, a technical, technical advisory panel, or TAPS, to look at how the Western, uh, Western Road Village area might be revitalized, building on the fact that the um, Metrolinx uh, rail link from Union Station to the airport will be going through there in a couple of... Uh, a couple of years. So that's the kind of outreach that uh, your membership and your, um, your attendance at events like this help support. So I thought I'd just mention that. And again, thanks to uh, Fred and Ed and enjoy the rest of the evening.